Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. This is the thing we keep hearing, I mean, at the UN all the time, how important it is to find in our career the the time and the commitment to experience and, and really dedicate time to working. And, you know, we keep call, calling it the field to really live in the country where that you are trying to make a difference in. Um, because I think never having that opportunity really does make you disconnected from the real day to day experiences of what it's like to you know, being the systems of that country. Hey, everybody. This is the Career Guide Podcast, brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Okay, and today we're joined by Yelena. Yelena, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks, Kyle. It's a pleasure. So one of the things that we often do, is, as you know, we sort of talked about already, is we talk about international careers and we talk about sort of the journey that we've had as professionals going through the international career system and community and what it's like to sort of navigate all these different sort of areas and, and organizations. And of course, I think one of the best place to start is uh, just a background and maybe some introduction uh, from your side. So please. Um, sure. Well, so I work right now for United Nations for the Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs, which is part of the UN Secretariat. And specifically, I'm in the Peacebuilding Support Office, which manages um, something called the Peacebuilding Fund. So it means we actually manage on behalf of the UN Secretary General, a relatively large um, fund, uh, which we invest in projects in countries affected by conflict or countries that have just come out or preventive actions that all try to contribute in one way or another to kind of sustaining peace to the priorities of the governments and the communities and various partnerships, usually with UN entities and civil societies in those countries. Well, that's very interesting. And how long have you been there now? Uh, It's really been about eight years. So I started as a UN junior professional officer, which is basically a, a program that a lot of UN member states have to allow young professionals from their countries, and sometimes they also sponsor other countries, to get into UN professional positions, into different offices and departments, usually for two to three years. Um, It is a competitive process, but it's usually open to nationals of that country. And I was very lucky that uh, just in the year that I applied, Australia, which hadn't funded any JPOs for many years, decided to trial a, a new JPO program and uh, had six positions around the world. And I basically ended up getting the one with the 
UN Peacebuilding Support Office, um, and that was for three years. And then I was lucky enough to apply for one of the positions of a program officer within the office. And so I've stayed on um, since then uh, in the same office, a similar capacity, just not a JPO, and basically uh, overseeing and, and managing projects that the PBF, the Peacebuilding Fund, has in 50 plus countries around the world. Oh, wow, that's amazing. And I'm actually glad that you mentioned that because many people that we talk to or that may be listening to this podcast are familiar with, you know, say a Young Professionals Program or the JPO program. And can we talk about that for a second in terms of what that was like for you going through that experience? How challenging was it for you to sort of, uh, you know, to get into the program? Because I hear it's very competitive. Yeah, thanks. I mean, first thing, I guess, for anyone interested is to check whether their country is participating in the program. And I think every country has its own specific way. And I, I know that some countries fund a lot more positions than others. So already, you know, that would be the initial starting point. Find out what is possible in your country. The other thing is some of them are more managed in terms of telling you in advance for which position you are applying. And sometimes it's kind of a pool of JPOs. In my case, I knew exactly what I was applying for which office. So it was also more tailored, I guess, to the experience and interest. And the other thing is they do tend to happen quite a bit in advance of the actual posting because it is a process that usually takes a few rounds. Um, so again, find out specifically for your country. In my case, it was a pretty small program because Australia just started funding it again. And it probably did take a few months. It had a, a, a few, yeah, I'm trying to remember now, it was a few years ago, but it had a few stages. I mean, usually it starts with a general application with a motivational letter and trying to respond to the specific criteria that the office is looking for, or the kind of UN capacities and skills and your CV. And usually it has to be entered into a specific kind of program or database. All of this can take quite a bit of time because unfortunately, even though we're such a technologically advanced world when it comes to applying to these jobs, especially big organizations, they all still seem to follow often antiquated systems and each one is separate. You know, you've got to spend quite a bit of time on that. And then the second stage is usually some kind of a written exercise that's usually going to be a little bit more technical. So asking you to, you know, potentially look at a project and, and critique it or comment on it, or perhaps write a briefing um, to do with whatever that office is um, working on or some kind of talking points about that or part of a re report or review something and, and provide basically your opinion, you know, some advice for the UN strategy. And then when you pass that stage, uh, the last stage would be an interview. And this is one that's a combination of maybe one or two also technical questions about your experience and what you will do that's relevant to that office. And also usually a few kind of capacity type questions that tend to involve things like experience in team building or, you know, dealing with problems or um, how you would approach uh, some specific uh, deadline or challenge or planning, timekeeping, you know, the, the very typical things that um, uh, the UN is looking for. And usually these competences can be found, you know, in advance uh, in that organization. So it was that. And I still remember, I mean, it felt completely unbelievable when I, when I got the call to tell me that I got the job. It was really changed my life. So it still seems unreal. But um, here I still am in the same office. So clearly I, I like the work. <laughs> So you're actually in the same office where you started in the JPO program? In the in PBSO JPO, that's right. I mean, I did work before that for a few years um, for the Australian government's aid program. So this is basically the 
you know, it was called AusAid. I mean, it's now integrated with the foreign affairs. I think if you follow these things, a lot of countries change how they want to conceive of their development, uh, international development agencies. In some cases, they are independent entities. In some cases, they are part of the foreign affairs department. Sometimes they merge or split again. But anyway, at the time that I started, I just graduated from university. It was a separate agency. And I joined their so-called, in Australia, they call them graduate programs. So that's also kind of like a JPO. I mean, it required less experience, even though JPO is called the junior professional officer. In reality, to be honest, most people I know who apply and who get these jobs have already worked for a few years and have some experience. They're not, again, depends on the country and maybe different countries have different standards. But my experience is that most of the JPOs are not just straight out of university, but would have a few years of experience. Well, the graduate program that I joined with the Australian government was literally made for people who were finishing university and looking for their first job in international development. And so I joined, it was a one-year graduate program, uh, but it was attached immediately if you were considered to, you know, just satisfy your work obligations. It was um, considered then a permanent employment uh, position as well within the government as a public servant and specifically um, specialist in the aid department. So that was my, my first experience. And I actually did that for six years, which included work in the headquarters, but also work uh, in two. I was lucky enough to, to, to have kind of two postings. One was a longer term one in Papua New Guinea for three years. And the other job just before I ended up coming to the UN was with Timor-Leste. Uh, but that was a very interesting possibility because it was kind of 50% of the time in Australia and 50% of time in Timor. We were trying to also pilot this kind of merged team approach between Timor and Australia. Oh, wow. And, and so how successful was that? So it's sort of like what we're looking at today most of the time, which is sort of like this hybrid or, or remote work type of thing, but you were doing it early on. How did that go? Yeah, I mean, it, it was very interesting. I, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, I think it would be more challenging, perhaps, depending on your personal family situation as well. I mean, I was still kind of younger at the time, and I didn't have a family, and I was very eager to keep traveling and moving. So for me, it was perfect, but I think it, it won't work for every situation. And for example, right now, my situation is different. And I think it's a big issue, I think, when looking at an international career, you know, what do you want to do with your family life as well? You know, how, what, what can you compromise and, and what's the best thing that works for you overall? Because sometimes things are not so easily compatible. But basically, to go back to your question, I found that experience to be very interesting because sometimes when you're in a field posting, you can feel a bit disconnected from the kind of headquarters and what, what are some of the policy decisions going on. And at the same time, vice versa, sitting at headquarters, you know, you can feel very removed from the actual implementation of programs, from the partner governments, from the partner communities that we're trying to kind of work with. So for me, that was um a very nice combination of the two. That said, before that, I spent three years actually living in Papua New Guinea with Ozaid as well. So that was a different one. And 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 there you can really immerse yourself completely because you, your life is in a posting. So I, I was happy to experience both. But that said, since I joined the UN, I mean, I do travel uh, quite a bit. Well, COVID has changed that. But barring COVID, uh, my job involves quite a bit of travel to the countries that we work with, but only for like a week or 10 days at a time. And I, I haven't yet, since joining the UN, gone to the field. And I often think about it. And, it, and it's actually a tough thing in our line of work to, to have to compromise because my personal 
kind of desire and, and drive would be to apply for another posting now. I'm very interested in, in West Africa, for example, but it just wouldn't work right now for my husband, for my child. And, and this is where, you know, you have to think that perhaps some things are possible at some stage. I'm now saying, okay, I'll spend a few more years at headquarters and then let, let's see, you know, there'll be a different stage in life when my partner's work will perhaps allow both of us to move again. Definitely. And I think there's always, and we've had these conversations before with other guests, there's always these sort of transition points, you know, and you sort of, everybody, well, not everybody, I guess it's too broad of a generalization, but many people start sort of in the field because that's where you're going to really get this cultural immersion that you're talking about. You get that really sort of immersive experience in the field and be able to have a real connection to the work that you're doing and feel like you're creating change. And that's something that a lot of people really like to do. I was doing that as well. And it's really a beneficial experience because it really forces you to reflect on what you think is sort of reality, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what what have you learned and what have you been told? And then sort of what's the different perspectives on this reality? And so that's, it's a, it's a fundamental and I think a really a, a, a shaping experience for many people. Yeah. And, and many people that we've... Uh, talk to you. Did you want to say something before I ask another question? Well, well, just on that, I mean, I wanted to say, you know, this is the thing we keep hearing, I mean, at the UN all the time, how important it is to find in our career the the time and the commitment to experience and, and really dedicate time to working. And, you know, we keep call, calling it the field to really live in the country where that you are trying to make a difference in. Um, because I think never having that opportunity really does make you disconnected from the real day-to-day experiences of what it's like to, you know, be in the systems of that country. I mean, even when we go on a posting, you know, let's not kid ourselves, like our life is very different from the life of the people that we're working with, unless, unless you know, you, you are choosing to do a posting that's really in a remote community, perhaps as a volunteer, you know, there are different kinds of postings, let's put it that way. But um, in my case, I have to admit, you know, I was always posted by either a government or now with the UN. And it's a very privileged position. Anyway, it's never going to be the same as for the people. But I think over time, and especially if you live in the country, you know, you do get an opportunity to understand better and to see the myriad complexities that, that we're facing. And it, it makes you both more interested and rewarded, but I have to say also more questioning of the work we do. I mean, it's impossible to do the work we do in, in development, in, in aid, without also questioning it all the time, because everything that seems simple on paper, like doing a project that you think is well-intentioned and that is there to provide education or health or peace building, social cohesion, whatever it is, as soon as you start to dig into it and meet with the people on the ground, you see that there are so many layers, you know, who is it that we're talking to? Who helps us to select the specific zone? Who selects the specific beneficiaries? How does that change their position in that community? How does that change the relationships between the different communities? Who gets paid how much? Who, you know, what kind of dialogues are we convening? Who are we empowering in those dialogues? What kind of messages are we sending? Are we maybe not following, you know, are we maybe uh, encouraging people to, to demand or to think, you know, that there is, you know, they could have more rights and then we don't follow it up with any actual action. So it's all just about um, uh, more promises. I mean, there are just so many layers that sometimes make you feel, my God, are we actually making any difference? Are we making something worse? But I think, you know, as long as we keep questioning this all the time and trying to understand and, and really listening to the people, and there's a lot of more thinking nowadays, I think, than even 15 years ago whenever I started about how we approach the aid business and the kind of decolonizing of aid, I think just 
it's really useful to think of all of that. And the more chance you have to work in the in the community, with the communities and for the communities trying to help, I think you can just become a, a better professional in person. Yeah, that, that's very astute. I think that that's something. And I was actually just having a conversation today, sort of balancing the risks and or the implications of me meeting with somebody and what that might change in, in far as their standings or perceptions in the community. And so that's an actually a really interesting perspective. And it's a nuance that I don't think you really pick up on unless you do spend time, uh, you know, what, what we typically call as in the field. But you sort of don't necessarily agree with the term of being in the field. What would you call it these days? It's really tricky, actually, because just uh, uh, just earlier this year, we were talking to a few of the like Peace Direct and some other NGOs that are really trying to think how to work better with the local communities. And, and so I don't have a perfect term, but certainly just listening to them and looking at their reports has made me question even more, even just the very terminology that we use day to day. I mean, from the field to the word, you know, beneficiary, there's so many words that have kind of power connotations. Uh, and maybe they don't for the part, like for me, you know, I sometimes use the word field without thinking. It's just to distinguish headquarters, meaning where is the capital <laughs> versus the field in those countries. But it is true that words are powerful as well. So I don't have an answer, but I guess all I'm trying to say is that as part of being in the, this world, always let's observe, you know, what are the messages we're sending, uh, both with the words we say, with the behaviors, with kind of how we conduct ourselves, because it's more than the actual, you know, formal work that we do. No, I agree. I think that we have to be aware of sort of the second and third degree order effects that we're creating just by simply being there, you know, and it, you know, so many people that we talk to and, and that are also listening to the show, we we often talk about, or at least try to bring out some of these transition points that people go through in terms of managing and, you know, finding, starting and managing their career. And it's often very difficult with people to get started. And you had mentioned a graduate program uh, and then, you know, had a, a, a very nice transition, I think, a, a fortunate transition. It's not easy uh, to get into the JPO program and then on to United Nations. In terms of that first transition of getting into the graduate program and then getting into the Australian aid, aid agency, what was that like for you and how long did it take? Was that your initial plan or is that something you just applied for and, you know, you were selected for? Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, I guess my own personal trajectory for, for many years before that had both exposed me and made me interested and passionate about just international affairs and kind of working with different cultures, not necessarily immediately clearly in development, but just having an international career as a starting point. And then I think as time progressed, becoming a bit more clear about, you know, what type. My own family immigrated. So when I was 12, we first left my country, Serbia. I uh, lived for three years in, in Russia, and then we moved to Australia. So I was already kind of exposed early on to what it's like to kind of transition between different countries and have to adapt and open yourself up and, and be put in countries whose language you don't speak and just all kinds of learning that happens. In my case, it made me really excited. And I think I afterwards just wanted to continue to do more of it. I was also studying languages from early on. I always like to communicate with different people. So I think that also helps. I mean, I was from a non-English speaking background. So I think it's even more important in, in our position. I think it's also very useful to speak at least one or two other languages, just because it, it gives you an opportunity to 
understand more people, especially if you're, you know, choosing languages from French to Arabic to Spanish. I mean, that they just are spoken in, in, you know, a lot of countries around the world. And then when I started studying, so, so my studies were in Australia, you have this thing called a combined degree. So two degrees kind of um, merged together. One was languages and the other one was law. And um, as I was doing that, I also did an exchange program in, in France. And I think each time you choose to even though it's not yet in development and career, but, you know, if you have opportunities through your studies just to experience different places and changes and push yourself in that way, all of that is going to be good preparation for later international work. So I ended up going basically to France for one year on exchange, thinking that would be it. And I just loved it so much. I loved, I was studying international relations there. I, it opened up my whole my world to kind of new things that I hadn't thought of before because I ended up going to a university focusing on kind of international affairs and political science. I decided that I was going to uh, try and make it back. So when I finished my degree in Australia, I came back to the same place to do two more years of study, which was a master's in international affairs. And as part of that master's, you had to do one semester of an internship that was relevant to your studies. And you had to find it yourself, but the university kind of helped a bit with contacts. And I ended up doing mine in, in Bogota, in Colombia. And that was actually with the UN, with the UN Office for Drugs and Crime. And that was my first exposure to the UN. And sometimes it's easier, you know, if you can afford it, this is the big problem to, to start as an intern, because unfortunately, some of these jobs are not paid, which is a big problem. So for me, it was easier because I went to Latin America, where the cost of life is a little bit more affordable than being an intern in, say, New York, which is can be really hard unless you are very good at saving in advance, etc. So all these, I guess, I'm trying to say that there were different steps along the way of my studies that just, um, where I took the opportunity, where I didn't have to, but I, I, I tried to take the opportunity where offered to experience a different um, culture and kind of, uh, you know, working on something that ultimately would, would bring me closer to the development world. And then when I was finishing my uh, degree, I started to think about what to apply for. And I think a few of us at the time from my friends who were studying um, law and political science at University of Sydney, we, we were starting to think about working for the government because it just seemed to us to offer us this opportunity to have a starting level job that would um, expose us to international issues and lives. And I have to say at the time, I still wasn't really clear in my mind that it would be international development and programs that would be very close to my heart and the best fit. I, I still thought at the time that maybe the diplomatic service would be something that I would want to do. I saw the diplomatic service as a way to really work on interesting international issues, international law, negotiations. And so I applied simultaneously and, and maybe different countries offer the same. You have to usually apply I don't know, six to nine months before you're finishing the degree. It, it usually has once a year intake because it's basically scheduled to take each time the intake of the new graduates from the previous year. So you do have to think a bit in advance, basically, uh, even a year in advance, let's put it that way. Um, I applied for both the foreign affairs and, and OZAID, and uh, I did not get foreign affairs. In fact, I didn't even get the second round, which at the time surprised me because I thought that at least on paper, on my degrees and languages and things like that, I would have satisfied them to give me the, the next opportunity. And, and really looking back, I am amazed that they could um, 
maybe I'm now inventing this, but it seems to me like from my motivation letter, they could tell that I wasn't really born to do diplomatic work, which is actually quite different. And um, I don't think I fully understood what it's about. So I think I would also encourage people to think, you know, what is it that they're driven by? I mean, all of this is international work, but some of it can be quite different, you know, whether you want to work on issues of actually foreign affairs, international law negotiation. A lot of it is about meeting diplomats from other countries, especially at the beginning of your career. There's a lot of uh, kind of more political work. You know, defense work is very different in my case, even though at the time I was very disappointed and even a bit kind of surprised. I'm very, very lucky because actually what I personally enjoy the most is this issue of kind of technically thinking about projects and how can we with a certain amount of money, you know, how can we support the development of a better system or a better issue? And so there is no better place than working in a kind of a development agency. It could also be perhaps an NGO. I mean, that's another stream. And I'm sure you'll talk to people who have that experience. But so I guess my word of advice is to to try and better understand what these dif- different entities um, in international affairs do and what aligns better with your own both skills, but also really passions and interests, because that needs to come across as well. I mean, they do get thousands of applications. In the end, these are, again, relatively difficult to get. But I think if you've done your homework, if you've done the studies, if you try to do some, you know, try to have some exposure to international work through internships, through summer programs, exchanges, you know, you're putting yourself on the right path. And then the next thing is, how do you explain your motivation? And finally, what I would say, you know, I mean, this is so, it's obvious, but it does make a difference to prepare yourself for the interview in a way that shows your knowledge and commitment of the specific entity you're applying for. You know, I think you would be a little bit, you just wouldn't do yourself justice to go into an interview only thinking about your own background and not trying to really understand what their organization is doing and showing that you understand, you care, and like what specifically in your background puts you in a good position um, to be part of that organization. So now that you're sort of reflecting back upon that and you're talking about sort of, you know, now if you're looking at it and you could see that there was sort of a gap in that cover letter and that motivation statement, and you're sort of more self-aware of that, I mean, how, how are people supposed to, you know, predict that or to be able to to develop a cover letter? I mean, how do they sort of get to the core of what they want to do for motivation and things like that in terms of writing these letters? Yeah, I mean, I will never know exactly, although I have to say that at the time I was lucky enough that I got a tiny bit of feedback. I mean, usually in all of these, you you will almost never get feedback, which is extremely frustrating. But the reality of having thousands of people applying, they, they barely get back to you, even if you make it kind of to the top round and they don't get the job. So I, I really think this needs to improve. But if you reject it at an early stage, you probably will never know. But in my case, I was lucky, perhaps because of the fact that I had a strong enough CV that they kind of felt that they could help me with a short answer. So they didn't go into detail, but they kind of made me understand that they didn't think that my motivation was fully aligned. Uh, with with kind of, uh, I, I guess, the department. I think I, I really, you know, wasn't thinking enough that, for example, I mean, this is just my example, you know, working in foreign affairs, it really is about pursuing the national interest of your government. And it's about trying to negotiate 
for that national interest. I was, I think, tailoring my letter more about my interest in and excitement about um, international work, different cultures, bringing people together, <laughs> contributing to a kind of greater good, which, which I'm not saying these are not important, but I think I, you know, I clearly didn't take the key kind of things that they were looking for. So again, I think if you um, spend a bit of time really reading up about the organization and what do they do, it will allow you to to make a better letter. I still wouldn't, I think, you know, I wouldn't encourage people just to lie slash, you know, we, we do write these letters. We all know that to some extent we have to portray ourselves in the best light. I mean, that's what motivation letters are, are also about. But I, I think I, it's still important to be truthful while putting yourself, you know, while highlighting all your best skills and, and the best light. But because, you know, no point really applying for places where in the end you don't have the right motivation and passion because it's hard enough to get those jobs. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's something that people often don't understand or, or maybe they do. I could be wrong. Right. But I think that one of the things is you see, you know, when you when you chair a hiring board and, and things like that is that you see the cover letters and you can you see enough cover letters in your life. You can tell. You can tell where, you know, where people are coming from when they write their motivation statements, when they write their cover letters, when they fill out their application. And you can tell when people don't really care to fill it out in detail. And you can tell when, you know, people are, are really sort of have spent time on it. You know, that sort of quality comes out. And so it's often surprising to hear that hiring managers or, you know, organizations will give you feedback and then tell you that, you know, give you sort of a nuanced perception of like, this was good, but we can feel like you're not really sort of completely dedicated to this purpose, you know? And so it's, it's sort of interesting to be able to, to, to read those cover letters. And that it just, I think that emphasizes your point in terms of really understanding the organization and understanding yourself about what you actually want to achieve, because there is this misalignment that can occur. And it, it often happens many times when people, maybe not necessarily in your case, but it often happens many times when people apply and apply and apply. And like you said, they never hear anything. And then you say, well, I'm never going to make it there with the UN or whoever. And then they start applying for everything else. And then they don't hear anything again because feedback is notoriously not given. Right. And then they start applying for everything. And then, of course, you're not going to get feedback because at some point in that whole chain, there's a there's not an alignment anymore with what you want to do. And it comes out in the form of your application. And so that that I think that's a really nuanced thing that sort of uh, I think people need to understand is that many times you can see it you can sort of feel it in the application itself and especially during the interview. Yeah. No, I was going to say on that, Kyle, you know, because it is so difficult to get that feedback from the hiring manager in the office. And I kind of now kind of from within the system, even though it's still frustrating, I can also see because you do sometimes get hundreds of applications and very often it is not, it's not just the human resources that are involved. Like it is the hiring manager who is like, a full-time team leader or director of a unit. So who, you know, for whom this is an extra addition looking for a staff, they, they do have a lot on their plate anyway. So the amount of time it would take to provide really good feedback to every applicant that actually was a good applicant, probably, unfortunately, would just not be possible uh, for that. So, so I'm just trying to say, you know, don't take it as a personal rejection that there is no such feedback because it really is, the unfortunate common situation, given how often overworked to the same people that are trying to hire someone are. So my suggestion would just be, you know, if you can build up your network, I mean, if you're already listening to the, this podcast and, you know, thinking through 
who do you know, who can you connect with, who can you talk to, perhaps through university. I mean, they often bring people to to talk to you or through internships or contacts and, you know, see if you can get some feedback on your CV or on your, or, or a sample motivational letter or something from them in that kind of very direct way, because I think it will be very difficult to get it just from this kind of applying in a, in a black box. Um, and it can be very useful. I mean, in my case, I really, you know, I, I feel very lucky that in the end it all worked out, but there was a moment of revelation where I thought, Oh, wow, I, I need to think about it a bit better. And, you know, maybe there's something else for someone else, but yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, giving proper feedback is very time consuming, right? So it, and not to, not to say that people don't want to give feedback, but in reality, you know, you're, you're probably spending 30 minutes to, to 45 minutes with every application or every applicant in person. And, and which on, on the face of it is like, well, you can always spend 20 or 30 minutes with people, but when there's 200 people, you know, now you're talking about hundreds of hours and that's like, that's weeks of, of feedback that you're working on, which detracts from everything else. And so I, I think it's, a, it's just an issue sort of of logistics, right? It's not, it's not malintent. It's just that it's, the system is huge. Yeah. Right? And I think, you know, all of our type of organizations that are kind of government type organizations, not the private sector, like they cannot just give very informal feedback for feedback to be provided. It has to be clear as someone It's also very sensitive. You know, what are you telling people? It's a, I think it's a lot easier in an informal conversation because you don't also have to check what exactly am I saying, uh, which would take even more time. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't, I guess, stress enough the importance of trying to find opportunities to just learn about those organizations and expose yourself. I know even back at my university, you know, every now and then uh, as part of the, the kind of career counseling, which of course is by no means perfect, but there would be some opportunities, you know, somebody would come and talk to us uh, or we would be encouraged to spend like a month in some kind of a, uh, professional, like for example, uh, during my, my studies, there was also a possibility to apply to do a so-called professional project where the university paired you up. I mean, they had a few organizations. They said, okay, we want to work with master's level students in your university. We even have a bit of funding and we want to give them a task. And you had to apply to be a part of that because not everyone could be, but you know, maybe not everybody was interested either. So I did, for example, that as well. And it's, it was another, it was a task with the human security unit of the UN. So another opportunity to just be exposed to the UN. And again, it didn't lead to any direct job. It's not like I did that project and I was like, okay, now I have a possibility of immediately getting a job here or a contact in the UN because unfortunately it doesn't work that way. But that exposure, you know, I, I got to speak to some people working for the UN. They got a chance to be interviewed by me, see a draft of my work. You know, all of that was useful as a direct feedback. I think there is a certain responsibility or, or sort of effort that we have to undertake when we, we, especially when you're starting your international career and especially when you want to progress in your international career. And, and this is another sort of point of transition that we can actually talk about because, you know, now that you've gone through that JPO program, you're with the United Nations and you're, you know, working in the international community, there's still this issue of exactly what you're talking about when you were, a, say, a, a student and you're sort of going out and proactively seeking these experiences to help give you some insight and understanding about how the international system works, it's very much the same. And what I try to communicate to people is like, it never really stops once you're inside the international community. Okay. So you've got the first job for the first three years, 
But, you know, everything is sort of donor driven, project funded, you know, positional budgets, some organizations on one year cycles for budgets, other on three year cycles, or it's a contract of three years. There's always this issue of you have to be proactive in your own career management. And so one of the things that that sort of expressions that I have is sort of always working on your career, not necessarily even if you're working in your career. So during these periods of transition, like when you were applying for the JPO and you're waiting for some feedback or something else like that, what were you doing in the meantime uh, while you're waiting six, nine months, a year before you were able to start somewhere else? I mean, well, in, in my case, I was lucky enough that I, I didn't ever have a gap in jobs because when I was applying for the UN JPO, I already had I had the job with Ozaid, which was a permanent job. So I... I, I had that as, as a backup. And, and I was looking at a couple of other possible jobs. I was specifically trying to move to UN New York, but this was my best bet was the one that did work out. And same when I was already a JPO in the in PBSO, I was lucky enough from then within that office to kind of to know when there would be positions. Now, it doesn't immediately give you the next job, but at least you know when somebody is leaving or when the office is going to expand kind of know when the new positions will be coming up. And you also know whether your superiors are satisfied with your performance. So, you know, these are the two things. Again, that still doesn't guarantee a job, but it's already giving you some indication. So I was applying for the, this professional post that I have now as a, as a program manager in PBSO when I already had my JPO. So it was a relatively smooth transition. I guess in my case. But what I would say is that um, I certainly know that even when you have a, a job like, let's say, a UN job in my case, it can often take many months to get the next job and that, you know, it, you still have to keep working at it. It's not going to be just automatic. And, you know, one unfortunate thing in, in many of these organizations is that you don't have just an automatic progression system. You often really have to apply for the next job to to get the next level, which, you know, maybe in the private sector is different. I'm, I'm not really sure, but both with AUSAID and the UN, you know, you actually had to apply as an internal candidate, but you still had to apply. And sometimes these jobs are equally open to external candidates to get to the next level. So you do have to keep kind of thinking and progressing and thinking, what are you best suited at? And again, I think what, what is really useful and what, if you can do it, it, it would be recommendable to, to keep thinking about um, more experience in the countries, like in the field, let's use that term again. If you can, but I have to say it's 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 really not an easy thing. I mean, same as in, in my case, you know, I've decided okay, I'm I'm going to deprioritize career progression. Let's put it that way for right now because I, I I love the job I do already, but also for family reasons, I don't have the same just independence to apply to go anywhere in the world, you know, and th these are the decisions you have to make and, and why it's also, I think, good to do as much as you can before you have other constraints. And what more to say, I guess the other thing just to keep in mind is as you, as you start to progress your career, you start to maybe decide for yourself, are you more interested in progressing at the management level? Like, do you want to be working more on people management, strategy management, that kind of stuff, which means kind of progressing up the ladder of management? Or are you more interested in becoming a thematic or technical expert where perhaps the level of progression is a bit more limited uh, in terms of you won't be managing as many staff, but you know you can become more and more experienced and specialized and higher level expert in that theme. 
Um, and, you know, at some point you may, may want to, I mean, even start to work for yourself or join an organization that specializes in that. But I think it is interesting to keep observing what both you're good and passionate at so that you start to build up your um, career and experiences in, in one of those two streams, which are a little bit different. I'm, I'm glad you said that because I have become a proponent in the last few years of the idea that we should continue to build our own professional brand while we're working with these international organizations because and and at least one international organization that I know of, you know, there's the very well-known statement of this is not a retirement organization, right? So there's specific time limitations within how long you can stay. And so then it's it's always going to be like that's a known variable when you join. So it's always an issue of what are you doing professionally to be able to get to the next step. And so it's always an issue. And I, I like to now think of it as your your own professional sort of identity or your personal brand or whatever you want to call it in terms of your own sort of profile as being an international career professional that you have that responsibility to continually build and work on regardless of who you're working with. Right. And so that's a, it's a different take than I had, you know, five or 10 years ago, because I was with, well, I'm with this organization and everything's fine, you know, and it, I think in the reality, it, it's not like that anymore. And it, it's changed substantially. And, and I'm, I'm sort of, I'm curious just on your opinion on this one. I have my own opinion, but I'll, I'd like to hear yours first. I think there's a point when we first start our careers, there's a point where we get to this place that you've mentioned and many other sort of guests have mentioned as well where other external factors, lifestyle, things like that, become the dominant sort of decision that you have to make instead of where you want to go with the next inter interesting position. So just out of curiosity and understanding that everybody is different in timing and everything else like that, what do, how many years do you think that is from sort of when you start your career to where you have to then start saying, okay, I can't just go anywhere I want? How far into your career do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it is very different for different people. And, and I do sometimes admire, you know, I've spoken to people, including my bosses, who've just done so many different postings uh, throughout their career. And sometimes I think, my God, how, how can you manage having a personal, stable life while also doing that? I mean, it sounds fascinating, but I think usually the maybe 10 years, I would say, like the first 10 years, you know, you're you're more um, open perhaps and, and able and determined to kind of um, learn more and travel and experience. And then I think after 10 years, you have to also take a step, take some stock of also the rest of your life and like, what else are you doing in life? And, you know, what do you want to prioritize for then those coming five to 10 years? And then I think there's another moment after that, that, you know, you would reassess again. And I think there are so many different possibilities and, and one shouldn't feel guilty to recognize the, the different kind of competing options. I mean, as long as you still are doing something where you feel you can contribute and that you love, you know, I think it's okay to sometimes say, okay, maybe five years ago, I was being more proactive in my career management. And now I'm taking a conscious step back because there are also other things. And maybe in a few years, I'll be able to, to go back to the kind of more conscious, proactive career management. And, you know, the other thing I think to think about is, as you progress your international career is to what extent, um, e even beyond the kind of field and not field, but to what extent do you want to be more of a generalist versus specialist, like beyond the kind of um, management versus experts, you know, do you want to be more of a generalist uh, looking at all kinds of different topics and just kind of having more general skills of planning, organization, critical analysis? Or do you want to more and more get into the detail of one specific area? You know, could it be rule of law? Could it be health, education, whatever it is? And 
I think it's interesting because sometimes that choice can happen a little bit randomly at the beginning because, you know, perhaps when you do the graduate program, I mean, they just put us in some rotations. That was my case. And, you know, you can say, oh, I'm more interested in this or that, but you don't necessarily get choice uh, choices about it. But then sometimes that can either kind of open up something you hadn't thought you were interested in before and you decide, oh, gosh, you know, th this is really fascinating which I think in many ways was what happened to me. Um, or you can really try consciously to put yourself on the path of a theme that you, know, you, you had pre-identified or, or want to do. Like I thought because I had studied law um, in my kind of undergrad that I would end up working more along the lines of rule of law and human rights just because it seemed to kind of put together that more technical expertise. And, and then as it turned out, just by circumstances and the rotations I got in Ausaid, I ended up working more in things of issues of governance and human security and education in kind of fragile context and just discovered that that was really fascinating and I loved it. And then I decided, well, I would try and do more of that. So I worked on education issues in both Papua New Guinea and Timor-Leste. And then when I applied for the UN, I did not end up going to like UNICEF or UNESCO on education. But the, the angle I found that gave me that continuity and made it interesting was the fragile context and kind of working in insecure environments and kind of post-conflict settings, but perhaps on a slightly different theme. And I think at some point um, we realized that, you know, if you are applying for jobs that are less um, kind of beginner jobs, but more mid to senior jobs, a lot of them seek specific, like many years of expertise in the same theme. Not all, but I just think people should be conscious. You know, you should be making a conscious choice as much as you can. Do you want to really do everything you can to stay in that same theme and get more of that experience and then be able to apply for those jobs, which I think in some ways is very rewarding because you have a continuous and growing experience in that theme. You can start to call yourself an expert. On the other hand, it can be a little bit more limiting because, you know, you, you get yourself further and further away from working in other organizations or settings. Because suddenly if I've only done um, education programs for like 15 years, maybe it's a bit harder for me to say I also want to work on environmental and climate security issues. So just just a kind of thought. Uh, that's absolutely that's absolutely correct. I mean, it, it's the same thing also in terms of a geographical restriction, too. So if you become just a expert in, I, I don't know, randomly like sub-Saharan Africa, you know, I don't know that that's simply all you're going to be sort of, you're going to be pigeonholed. You're going to be put inside that sort of niche profession. And then that's all that you, you'll be trapped in that because trying to transition out to something else is going to be very different. And so I'm always a proponent and, a, and an advocate for the fact that, you know, pick something that is sort of universally appealing across geographic domains so that you have the ability to move in between those. But then there's also this programmatic feature. And, then, and you have to really sort of understand the organizations and then understand their pillars and their programming and their focus so that you can attach yourself to sort of maybe one of those and then see how it applies across many domains within the organization itself. And extract the kind of what, what are the common things, you know, even though you're working in that sector, like as I was saying, you know, maybe my change from OSE to the UN Peacebuilding Support Office doesn't seem immediately obvious from one job to the other. But, you know, the connection I found was like programming in fragile or post-conflict environments. And I would encourage everyone, like when you're moving along with different jobs, try and find what are the broader points that you can say you've been working on beyond that very specific kind of task or, or issue. Yeah, absolutely. 
So we are down to the last question now, and I, you, you've already given us so much insights and information. I'm not sure you, if you have much more to add, but I'll ask the question anyway, which is now that you're looking back across sort of your experience thus far, if you were going to do anything different, what would it be? Yeah, it's, it's, it is a tricky one, to be honest, because I was, in the end, I feel very lucky where I am, to be honest. And I think, you know, it is so wonderful to be in a position where you feel lucky with your work and where I feel still passionate about what I do and kind of just almost in this belief that I have this opportunity, given, you know, how privileged we are to, to, to have a good job working on development issues. Um, what I could do different, I mean, certainly, I think... I would um, just try to understand, like spend more conscious time from the beginning. I think I'm trying to do it a bit more now, but even now, sometimes life gets the better of me and, you know, between work, between settling in a different country, between family, you know, still probably we don't think about it enough. It's really this kind of conscious thinking, not every day, because that would probably be a bit too much and too much introspection, but regularly to kind of reflect, like, what am I learning and where am I going and what am I able to contribute and try and basically align my career thinking better to that and, and be thinking more of the next step. I think in my case, sometimes, you know, the JPO thing ended up being very lucky, but I don't think that necessarily from the beginning, I had a kind of a, a clear long-term vision. So again, it doesn't mean that you have to have it, but I just think that the more you think about how your skills and your interests and preferences and your possibilities that the person are changing, the better you'll be able to be prepared and tell yourself because applying for jobs really takes time. I mean, even if I think, okay, next time I need to apply for another job, it really is a huge commitment. It's not something that you can just, oh yeah, let me just for five minutes. I mean, every organization has its own templates, their own databases. You got to first, you know, do logins, passwords, millions of things. So you have to kind of really prepare yourself for that. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's not going to get any easier, right? So Unfortunately, we, we have to be... Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I, I really think we if, if we see it as something that is also good for us because it keeps us a little bit on our toes versus just kind of assuming this is my lifetime, as you said, retirement job, and I don't have to care as much or put as much effort, which maybe would happen if we if we didn't have to think about it. You know, that, that maybe let's, um, let's see it for the positive it offers, I guess. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much for sharing your your experiences, your insights, and you know sharing your story with us uh, on the Career Guide podcast. Yelena, thank you very much, and thanks for being here. Thank you. Good luck to everyone. Thanks, Kyle. <laughs>